Good morning, Trinity Church, and let me extend uh, our welcome to you again this morning uh, in our third uh, virtual gathering, and uh, we're glad that you're able to join with us, and uh, especially if you're joining with us for the first time or the first time in a long time, uh, welcome to this virtual gathering of Trinity Church. Uh, we are kind of making our way through various stories of the Gospel of John. So if you have a copy of the scriptures handy, I would invite you to go to John chapter 11, and uh, we'll be reading from some scripture from there. So let's pray, and uh, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to uh, hear from your word. I pray uh, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to see things about Jesus that are glorious and compelling, that we would find him trustworthy, and we would indeed trust him with all of our lives. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, throughout the last couple of weeks, uh, the kind of theme verse that has uh, kind of captured my heart, um, and as I've been communicating to you all, is from John uh, chapter 16, verses 32 and 33, Jesus is about to die the next day. He's in the upper room, uh, and he tells his disciples that they are going to have tribulation in this world. Uh, but be of good cheer, or take heart, have courage, uh, because he has overcome the world. And so we're continuing on that theme, uh, to be of good cheer. The title of this one is that I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, we're going to be looking at a story from John chapter 11. And maybe some of you are wondering, did he get it confused? Like, does he think today is Easter? No, I don't think today is Easter. Uh, but this story uh, is, a, you know, we looked at John 2 when Jesus turned the water into wine. That was one of the signs that he did to communicate who he was. Last week we looked at John 6 uh, when he gave them the bread of life on the mountainside. Or mountainside and Well, he said he was the bread of life, but he fed the 5,000. Uh, that was a sign pointing to who he is. Uh, and today, we're going to see his interactions with a friend named Lazarus, uh, who he restores or uh, resuscitates from the dead. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' comments on that. And one of the reasons why I chose this story, uh, today is actually Palm Sunday. It's uh, leading into Holy Week for us. And uh, I guess I hadn't really put the pieces together. Maybe I had at some point in the past, but... Uh, it became really clear this week as I was reading through John that the events that happened with Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary, uh, were really events that precipitated uh, the, the triumphal entry as we're used to hearing. So actually, I, I know I told you to turn to John 11, but if you just flip over a little bit into John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, you'll see the triumphal entry, a, a reference to Palm Sunday. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast that Jesus was, uh, had heard that he was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of the palm tree, went out to meet him, and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so that's what we're familiar with, that story of Palm Sunday, how the crowds at Passover welcomed Jesus in. Of course, many of them misunderstood what was actually going on. But later, we find out in verse 17 that the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so in commemoration of Palm Sunday, uh, this day, and as we anticipate Holy Week and next Sunday being Easter, this story of what Jesus does with Lazarus and his sister precipitates and informs and you could even say fuels 
what is going to be happen, uh, happening on Palm Sunday uh, so many years ago. So that's why we're looking into this story, and I'm hopeful that, in fact, it will cause your heart to be of good cheer, that you will take heart uh, based on what we see here uh, in this story in John chapter 11. All right, well, with that introduction in place, we need to jump right in because there's a lot for us to cover this morning. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to read the first section, and then we're going to make some comments on it. This first section I've entitled is uh, Jesus' Presence Delayed. John chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, they sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again, where Bethany was. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he's going to recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, so that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus' presence in Bethany is delayed. That's the theme of this section of scripture. And let's just make a few observations before we move on to the next scene. The first is that this is a well-known family, uh, that the text says that Jesus loves. Mary and Martha occur in other gospel stories, you know, where um, Mary sits at Jesus' feet and Martha's busy serving. It's, it's that same Mary and Martha. They live in Bethany, which is just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And this is during the Passover, as I've said in the introduction. This is right before, this is uh, the triumphal entry, and Jesus' execution is not far down the line. It's a little over a week away. And so it's a fairly charged situation. It's a family that is well-known and well-loved by Jesus. And Jesus receives a message from this family that Lazarus, the one whom he loves, uh, that came from Mary and Martha, saying, you know, Jesus, that you love Lazarus, he is sick. And... Uh, you know, probably the, the implications is very sick. They would not be sending a messenger all those miles to, to find Jesus, to figure out where he was. Again, no telephone, no email, no pagers, none of that. Got to go find Jesus and communicate to him that Lazarus is sick with the implication then that Jesus would come and hopefully perform a, a miracle and save uh, Lazarus's life. You know, it's really interesting that Jesus' response to that message is that he says that this sickness will not lead to death. When in fact, as we read, by the time we were done with just this section, we find out just a couple days later that Lazarus is in fact dead. And so what is Jesus saying here? What, you know, what's he communicating? And, and one of the things that we have to learn, if you want to follow Jesus, I don't care if you 
you're just learning to follow Jesus maybe, or you've been following him for a long time, that Jesus uh, is deep, you know, and things on the surface aren't always what they seem. And just to give you a couple of examples from the Gospel of John, you know, when he turned the water into wine, it wasn't just about the wine. When he went and upset all of the, the, he made all the commotion in the temple, it wasn't just about the temple there in John 2. When he met the woman at the well and they were talking about drawing water out of the well, the issue there wasn't just about physical water. When he healed the man on the Sabbath, Jesus said the Sabbath is not just what you think about. It's the Sabbath isn't for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for the glory of God. So there's a deeper thing. The bread was not just about the bread. And even here, even life and death are not as what we would see that life and death is about. And so when Jesus says this sickness is not unto death, he's got something deeper and more profound, more eternal that he's working off of. And as followers of Jesus, as readers of this story, we need to be keyed in to that reality that there's something deeper going on here than even just physical death. So Jesus says it's not going to lead to death. And then the text says in verse 5 that he loved these folk, so he waited two days. That's another potentially confusing thing. It's not unto death, and yet we find out that Lazarus died. And now the text says that he loves these folk. One of his good friends is sick unto death, and so he says, you know what, I'm going to wait a couple of days. That seems the very opposite of what love would be. I mean, can you just imagine? I mean, a day and age where we live right now, I mean, we're kind of like slaves to email and text message. It's like you're rude if you don't respond to a text message within a certain time frame. You're considered rude. I mean, think about this. These two sisters, their brother is literally on his deathbed. They send the message, and they're just hoping any minute for Jesus to show up or for a messenger to come and say that he's heard and that he's responded, and it's just nothing. Silence. Hour after hour. Day literally after day. And Jesus doesn't show up. And Lazarus dies. And it's like the verse says that because he loved them, he waited. We're going to get back to this uh, when we talk about the discussion that Jesus has with the sisters in the next section. But sometimes Jesus makes us wait in order that we might learn to see a greater wonder. So Jesus says, does one more thing before we move into uh, the next section here. That's potentially a little bit bewildering. I mean, there's been three kind of potentially confusing responses by Jesus so far. This doesn't lead to death, and yet we find out Lazarus dies. He loves them, and yet he waits and lets Lazarus die. And then the third thing is that he decides to go visit Lazarus once he's dead, under threat of his life. And so we saw that with his disciples there. And in verse 7, Jesus says, we're going to go back to Judea, to Bethany, where uh, Lazarus is. And his disciples say, ho, 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 wait a minute, Jesus, don't you just remember that the Jews are trying to kill you? That's a reference to John 9 when he heals the blind man there and he has a confrontation with the Pharisees and they're seeking to put him to death. Although that's been happening for a while. You go back to John chapter 5 after he performs the miracle on the Sabbath, and then he says that my father is working and I am working, and he makes himself equal with God, and they're trying to put him to death after that. They've been trying to put Jesus to death for at least a year, at least a calendar year at this point, and so Jesus is a persecuted and a pursued man. I mean, it's interesting. You know, we in our country, we're like, you know, we have the, 
you know, the right to you know, freedom of religion and we can meet and do what we want to do and all that kind of stuff. Well, just so you know, our Savior, our King, did not have religious liberty at this moment. He didn't have freedom to go wherever he wanted and do whatever he wanted to do. His life was in jeopardy. And so he was wisely, uh, he was in control of the situation. He was maneuvering and cra crafting and avoiding where and when he wanted to be so that he wouldn't die until his hour came. But now he decides that he's going to go back to Judea, and his disciples are just totally confused. You know, why would we go back there? And, of course, at this point, they just think he's sleeping. You know, Jesus says our friend Lazarus is asleep, and they're like, well, he was sick. He's sleeping, of course. He'll get better. And Jesus is like, no, guys, hello, he's dead. And then they're like, oh, well, that doesn't make it much better. Why go visit him now that he's dead? Like, our life is on the line. Why go there? You wouldn't go visit your friend there under threat of your life unless it's your business and it's your job to lay down your life for your friends. That's what Jesus is all about. He's going to say that in John chapter 13, that he came to lay down his life for his friends. And so this is a, a little a foreshadow of what's going to happen about a week later when he dies on the cross. Jesus lays down his life for his friends, and he's doing the same thing here proleptically by saying, I'm going to go visit Lazarus even though it's a threat to my very own life. Thomas here, he gets a lot of, uh, um, I don't know if abuse is the right word, but he's called Doubting Thomas because of what happens later in chapter 20. Uh, he, he doubts the Lord's resurrection a bit here. But you see a bit of bravado, albeit maybe uninformed bravado. Thomas says, hey, all right, everyone, let's go with him, and we'll die with Jesus even if he has to die. And so there's, you know, that's a, a hopeful, courageous comment by one of the disciples here from Thomas. So what we find at the end of this section here is that Jesus has received a summons to help his friend Lazarus, who is sick near to death. And Jesus loved this family very much, but he decided to wait, which seems crazy to us. But John is recording this, and Jesus has said two things in here to kind of help us as we move forward into the next scene. He says to his disciples that the sickness isn't to death, but for the glory of God. Jesus is going to be completely in charge of this scene and this situation so that you and I and everyone who was there back then can see something glorious and marvelous about Jesus. That's why this situation occurred. That's why Jesus waited. And secondly, not only are we going to see Jesus' glory in this situation, but he also says, Jesus says, I'm glad that I wasn't there to heal Lazarus before he died for your faith. He wants us to see something about his character, his person, and how good and how powerful and how glorious Jesus really is. He shows himself to be trustworthy so that we, the observers, the listeners, the readers, will actually trust Jesus, which is completely in line with John's purpose of writing this biography of Jesus. He tells us explicitly why he wrote it in chapter 20 and verse 31. He wrote about the signs that Jesus performed, including this one with Lazarus, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that in believing we might have life in his name. And so we want to see the glory of Jesus as the Messiah in this episode, and he wants to strengthen our faith. Maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time, that we might have our faith renewed and strengthened in Jesus Christ, especially in these days where sickness and death 
are all over the news and the media and there's fear all around us. We need a message where Jesus speaks into a situation of sickness and death. And this is one I think that will fill your heart with good cheer. Take heart, Trinity Church. Be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome. All right, let's go to the second scene. Got some more ground to cover here. And in this one, this is where Jesus' plan is discussed with the two sisters, with Martha and with Mary. Martha first and then with Mary. And in these two conversations that Jesus has with these two sisters, I think you see a, an awesome interaction about how we as Christians, followers of Jesus, interact with tragedy in our lives. Because make no mistake, the death of Lazarus, it, from every, you know, we don't know exactly, but from everything we kind of get the feel of this whole story, reading between the lines, this was an untimely death. This wasn't, you know, you know Lazarus was well on into years. There's no indication of that. It's, it's that here's a youngish type man that has untimely died. And so here's a tragedy that is filled with sorrow and grief and pain. And Jesus now is going to speak into the situation first to Martha. And that conversation is going to be more theological and then he's going to speak to Mary, and that situation is going to be more emotional. Those are the two things we're going to see, theology and emotion, and how those things are wedded together necessarily so uh, in the midst of a, of a tragedy, in the midst of grief and suffering. And so here's what happens. Jesus approaches, and before he can even get to the village, Martha hears that he's coming, and she runs out to meet him. This is the Martha that we know from the previous uh, stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where I, uh, specifically I know it's in Luke, where um, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is busy serving. And she says, hey, Jesus, Mary should come help me with the serving. And Jesus says, it's okay. Mary has chosen a better part. She doesn't have to get up. She can sit at my feet. That's good and noble. Martha here is ever the activist. She runs out of the village. She gets Jesus before she comes in. And she says to him, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. So it's like, whoo, that, that's uh, bordering, you know, that's bordering on an accusation. Now, I really think that would be um, reading too much into this to say that Martha is accusing Jesus. I really don't think she is. She follows that statement up very quickly with verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And so there's this kind of, um, kind of coming back. She borders maybe on, you know, not being respectful, but in a sense she comes back and says, Lord, I know that you're in control. I know that God hears your prayers and that whatever uh, is happening with you or whatever you ask of the Father, he will give to you. So we see Martha here in the raw. She's hurting. Her pain is powerful. It's pervasive and deep in her. It's led her to run out and, and meet Jesus and, and make that kind of almost brash statement to him. Her pain is very personal here as well. She says, my brother. You know, doesn't use Lazarus's name. She makes this very, this is, I'm feeling pain. My brother has died. And now what does that mean for us and for our family and for me? So her pain is powerful and it's personal and certainly there's a hint of kind of, again, like with these stories, you got to be careful, but kind of reading between the lines, like it's, she's perplexed, like, why didn't you come? We sent the messengers ahead so that you could get here and do something about this. I mean, I think, you know, we probably can feel 
or maybe resonate or connect with Martha here, right? I mean, have you ever lifted your voice in prayer to the heavens and just said, Lord, if you had only come through in the moment, are there unanswered prayers regarding maybe the loss of a loved one, an untimely loss of a loved one? Or any time there's a loss of a loved one, timely or not, it's never timely. Lord, if you had only answered my prayer, if you had been here, maybe there's a broken or a fractured relationship that you had prayed and asked the Lord for and it didn't happen, and it's, or maybe I should say it didn't happen yet, and it's like, Lord, if you had been there, if you had intervened, or Maybe a wayward child or some personal failure or missed opportunity that you've prayed about and you're just saying like Martha, Lord, if you had been here. I mean, is everyone, have you ever thought that Jesus' timing is off? I mean, I'm sure Martha and even as we'll see in a second, Mary thought Jesus' timing could have been a little bit better. What did you wait for? You know, have you ever heard that, even asked or received that question? What were you waiting for? What were you doing? These important things were happening. And yet, in the midst of that powerful and perplexing and pervasive pain that Martha was going through, there still was a note of faith and submission, which I want, which you know she ought to be honored for in one sense, but also that's the stuff of Christianity. Christianity can be perplexing. Following Jesus is not always evil or easy. Uh, I don't know why I said evil. Following Jesus is never evil, Trinity. <laughs> it's all of those things, and yet there's the presence of faith and hope in Jesus. She says, even in the midst of all of this, I know that you're right and that God hears you and that you can do whatever you will. And that way she's been trained by the Psalms. I mean, you could pick any one of a number of Psalms, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, I mean, just Psalm 18, just Psalm after Psalm you could pick where the psalmist is like, where are you, God? And most of the psalm is just this almost venting to the Lord, like, what's wrong? Where are you? Where's your, are you faithful to your promises? And then by the end of the psalm, it's like, well, you know what, Lord, we trust you. I know that you'll do what's right. You're faithful and good. And that's Martha's response in the midst of this personal tragedy that she's experiencing. So now Jesus responds to this statement. If you'd been here, um, my brother wouldn't have died. I know that God listens to your prayers. Jesus responds to him in a very uh, short way. He says, actually, he, he speaks the gospel to her. He very simply says, your brother will rise again. I mean, that's an amazing statement. First of all, just get that. That's the gospel, first of all. Jesus brings the good news to bear into this tragedy. Your brother is going to rise again. If Martha's comment kind of bordered on an accusation, Jesus' response borders on being callous. I mean, this woman is in deep distress, and Jesus simply says, your brother will rise again. It's almost like a cliche, you know, uh, you know. I've told people, be careful about using cliches when people are grieving, but... I mean, Jesus basically kind of uses a cliche here uh, that your brother is going to rise again, and so it, basically the implication is so it's going to be okay. Martha doesn't really take that as okay. She's like, well, I know he's going to rise again at the end, at the final judgment, but her, her response is more like, but what about right now? What about what you could have done for me and for us right now? Jesus' answer probably should have been good enough, 
that your brother will rise again, and she should have received that. But in another sense, there's this longing that, that something happened immediately. She wanted something done by Jesus right then and there. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to speak more gospel theology into her life. Your brother is going to rise again. And Martha, as she's a good Orthodox follower of Jesus. Yep, I know in the end he's going to rise again. And now Jesus is going to take just a moment and teach her and inform her about what the real resurrection is. And what Jesus says is one of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Here Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus moves the center of the concept of resurrection from a future event to a person, himself. He spoke the gospel in general terms to her in the beginning. You know, it almost sounded a bit callous, but it was true nonetheless. Your brother will rise again. She's like, yeah, I know, and she provides an orthodox answer, and then Jesus takes that general gospel truth, and he makes it specific about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who gives life, and I can give it again. He centers the discussion on himself. And so at that point, he asks her, do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. That is exactly what John's point. He wants every reader to come to that to that realization, to that faith that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And by the way, this is without Jesus even saying that he's going to raise her brother from the dead right then and there. So Jesus basically encourages her and challenges her to reshape her kind of insufficient orthodoxy. It's not enough as a follower of Jesus to have the right doctrine. It needs to be on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus' good news, that he died and that he rose again. And it also has to be infused with the presence of Christ. Christ takes the resurrection as a future event, and then he brings it into the presence, and he says, Hi, the one who am present with you right here, Martha, I am the resurrection. You don't have to wait to experience resurrection to the future. You can experience it right now. And if I could just make a quick application aside here before we press on with the story. We all can experience resurrection right now. That's actually the one of the, maybe I shouldn't say it's an aside, that's one of the main points of this story, is that we all need to experience resurrection. Uh, the great apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we are spiritually dead in our sins. But because of the mercy and the love of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, you are now spiritually made alive. Whereas before, you could not see the glory of Jesus, except maybe superficially. Now, if you're born again or you're made alive in Christ, now you can see Jesus in a more full and glorious way. You couldn't really hear his voice, but now as you read the pages of scripture, it's like the truth of Jesus jumps off the page and says, if you can hear his voice. First Peter says, you can taste and see that the Lord is good. These are all ways that indicate that you're spiritually resurrected. The, the new life of Christ has begun in you. And so that's a massively significant um, 
application for us in this passage here, Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just enough to think that, oh, the dead will be raised one day, or this is my view of what's going to happen in the end times. To be, to experience what Jesus wanted Mary and Martha and even Lazarus to experience is his presence as new life in their life connected. And that does not happen by your good works or your money or any of that. It happens through faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And if you do, if you entrust your entire life to him, then you experience a spiritual resurrection as you await the future and final resurrection. That Martha was right about, but she needed more. She needed an informed orthodoxy with the gospel of Jesus and the presence of Christ. So, that's the discussion, the theological discussion, that Jesus has with Martha. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus takes that opportunity to inform her about what true resurrection life is. It's not just thinking right thoughts about the Bible. It's about experiencing the presence of Jesus in your life that day and every day. The second uh, discussion that Jesus has is with, uh, with Mary. And this is in verses 28 down through verse number 36. And I'll just take a moment to read through here. When she had said this, that's when, when Martha confessed that Jesus was the Christ, she went and called Mary, and she said, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her, that's with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her. They went with her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So, you know, there's a contrast here between Mary and Martha. There always seems to be a contrast. Martha's the doer, the activist. And, and Mary is more uh, pensive and, and patient, more contemplative maybe. I don't think we're meant to pit them against each other. I think they're two noble expressions of faith that can learn from one another. Faith in Jesus ought to be like Mary, patient, pensive, um, humble. And faith in Jesus also ought to be like Martha at times, active, go-getter, bold. And so these two sisters, I think, are both a picture of faith. Here's Mary, though, a bit more patient than her sister Martha. Jesus calls for her. She goes out to meet him. And this whole mourning or weeping entourage, which was the custom back then, went with her. They thought she was going to the tomb. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same exact thing as Martha. Surely they had had a conversation. What are we going to say to Jesus when he shows up? And they kind of had a, a united story in that. We wish you had been here so our brother would not have died. Jesus doesn't engage in a theological conversation at this point with Mary like he did with Martha to communicate his identity and his goals. Instead, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with him also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus' response to Mary is emotional. It's visceral. It's to the core. It says he's greatly troubled. That's, it's a really difficult word to translate, but most people think 
you know, the ESV didn't get it right here, okay? It's too benign. It's too uh, domesticated and cleaned up. Jesus is frustrated. He is maybe almost angry about what he's experiencing. Death, the death of his friend is looming everywhere. He's probably in sight of the tomb of his friend whom he loved. And you've got Mary and Martha whom he loves as well, and they are weeping, and there's extended friends and family who are all weeping and mourning, and something rises up within our Savior, the Word made flesh, the God-man, that when he is surrounded by this death of, the, of, of those who he loves, it, it evokes this reaction with him that he's frustrated not to mention, he knows that his own death is looming within about a week or so. And so that is emotionally playing inside of our Lord. And then even beyond that, you've got the kind of the, the thickness, so to speak, that his disciples aren't really getting what's going on. And then he's got enemies who are disbelieving, actively opposing him. And so I think, I don't know if you, you know, I, I know I can experience frustration and disappointment and sadness and all of that at once. And I'm kind of like sad, mad about it. And he's frustrated. And then it also says that he wept. And so I think this is an amazing response to the sin and the suffering that we see in the world around us. We need to follow our Savior. We should not be comfortable with sin and suffering. It should cause frustration and indignation in us, lament. You know, we really, as a culture, try to sanitize death. You know, we try to make it as clean and as non-offensive as possible, and that's absolutely fine in one sense. But in another sense, every death, every sin, all the suffering, all the sickness, you know, COVID is, in a sense, one sense, a tip of the iceberg of the suffering and the sin in our world. And we see here in Jesus' humanity that it frustrates him and causes him indignation. And yet it also leads him to weep and to mourn. We have a Savior who grieves and who weeps with us. For all those who know him, he's with us in our suffering we have a Savior who weeps. And so this is the picture that we need to get of Jesus. In the midst of tragedy and trauma and loss, Jesus comes into that situation and has discussions with Mary and Martha. And first, he points Martha to himself and to the good news of the gospel that he is the resurrection and the life. That's the center and the foundation of all of our suffering needs to go there. And yet it's not just a cold orthodoxy. Jesus enters in emotionally, and the truth of the gospel interacts with the pain and the suffering, and we see our Savior in an informed, loving way speak truth in love. And so we have a little comment here at the end by some of those who watched. Some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind, also kept this man from dying? Which, yeah, we don't have all the answers. I'm kind of with the crowd there. Couldn't he have done this differently? Couldn't he have handled it differently? I don't have necessarily, and Christian, Christianity doesn't have all the answers as to why there is sin and suffering in the world. But we can say this much, and Tim Keller has said it this way, we cannot say that Jesus doesn't care. He entered into our sin and our suffering. He's the Savior who weeps. Now we move to our third and final scene. Before there's, the, there's a third scene and then there's a response. 
The third scene is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And this is where we see Jesus' power displayed. You see, brothers and sisters, as I was going through this and recognizing there, there's definitely a sense in which I'm glad that I have a Savior who weeps with me, but I don't just want a Savior who weeps. I want a Savior who wins. And in this section, we're going to see that Jesus wins. Verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. Again, we're confronted with the emotional life of our Savior here. He came to the tomb and being kind of, you know how this happens to you, like when you're actually there and, and he's at the tomb and it causes him again to have this deep frustration and indignation. It was a cave and there was a stone against it. This is certainly foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection that will be about a week later with the cave and the stone. And Jesus said, take away the stone, something he wouldn't have to say on Easter. He did it himself, but... Mary, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an, or an odor. <laughs> the King James Version is definitely better. Uh, it says, Lord, he stinketh, which is what my mom used to say to me after games. But she is kind of, you know, Mary's, con or, excuse me, Martha's conflicted. She wants Jesus to open the tomb and raise Lazarus. But on the same hand, it's like, it, you know, th that could be embarrassing, and that's disrespectful, and that's not according to custom, and it's been four days, which the reason why Jesus waited four days, by the way, is because of their burial habits. They would quickly try to get people in the ground. Less than 24 hours, there was no embalming. And many times when you do that in haste, there's some like slight resuscitations, like heartbeats can go again, or lungs might start pumping again, and people might move or something like that, and people say, oh, did they raise from the dead? Well, after four days, that doesn't happen anymore. The Lazarus is good and dead, and Jesus wanted to make sure he was good and dead, which he surely was at that point. And so Martha's got some of these other concerns. She's certainly conflicted, would love for Lazarus to be raised and restored, but at the same time, this is, this is out of custom and potentially embarrassing and disrespectful. And she says, you know, he stinks. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you if you believed you'd see the glory of God? Going back to the beginning. The reason Jesus told this story is you get to see something glorious about Jesus. Get this, Trinity Church. We worship a Savior who raises people from the dead. That could be the whole sermon right there. Literally, Jesus raises people from the dead. Mic drop. Anyway. So he reminds her, hey, I said you were going to see the glory of God. And here it comes. And then he offers a prayer of thanksgiving that actually affirms Martha's theology. She said before, I know that the Father hears you. Jesus says, Father, I know that you hear me. He affirms Martha in his prayer, even as he speaks to the Father. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. What? That's a dramatic scene. I mean, don't miss. Jesus did not say, hey, Lazarus, uh, why don't you come out, uh, in kind of a calm, subdued voice. Jesus has been very emotional to this point. We've discussed it two or three different times already. And Jesus is standing at this tomb, frustrated, indignant with what's happening with sin and its effects. He's weeping for the loss of his friend temporarily and also the, his coming death and all of those things are swirling. And Jesus stands at that tomb with the stone rolled away. And I think the best English word to use here is that he shouts. 
It says, the Greek there says he cried out. It's not like a scream or a yell. He shouts so that Lazarus can hear and everyone else around him can hear, Lazarus, get out. And that's all it took. I mean, can you just imagine being there and seeing that? I mean, most of us can't even get our dog to come out when we want the dog to come out. And it's alive. Jesus shouts into a tomb and a dead man literally walks out. That's glory. That's why Jesus waited the couple of extra days. So that you and I could read this. I mean, again, I know it's an eyewitness account. We're reading it in a book. We weren't actually there. But in this eyewitness account, we have a faithful witness to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth raises people from the dead. You see his glory. Now do you want to trust him? The response to this miracle is kind of typical. Verse 45, some people believe. Others run to the Pharisees and tell them what Jesus had done. In, the, in verse 47, it says the chief priests, they gathered together the council, and what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so the response is diverse to Jesus' glory. Some people believe. Some people oppose. And the reason why people oppose is because Jesus is going to upset their accepted way of life. We read it right there. If this keeps happening with Jesus, we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our standing. We're going to lose our comfort. Things aren't, you know, we're not going to be in control anymore. Was Jesus a threat to these religious leaders? The answer to that question is absolutely yes and absolutely no. And here's what I mean by that. For these leaders, or for anyone for that matter, if you come to believe in Jesus... You, you genuinely trust him. He absolutely is a threat to your current way of life. Because he's the resurrection and the life. He's come to bring eternal life, which means all other versions of our lives or versions of ourselves are not sufficient. Ultimately, whatever version of life you live for yourself will lead to the grave, and so it's not good enough. And so if you come to Jesus, what you're saying is your life on your own isn't good enough. You're, you might lose your place and your standing in this life. Absolutely, yes. Make no bones about it. Jesus says, if you come to me, you deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me. If you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll actually find it. And that's why, and is Jesus a threat? No, of course Jesus is not a threat. He's the author of life. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's on a mission to lay down his life for the people that he loves. How could he ever be a threat? And so Trinity Church, be of good cheer. You come to Jesus, and yes, your life, your family, your resources, your house, all of that now you're placing into the hands of Jesus. 
And if that feels like a threat to you, then you don't really trust him yet. On the other hand, you take all of your life and you lay it into his hands and you trust him implicitly and completely, then of course Jesus is in no way a threat to you. And so this story is a wonderful, is another, I would say, wonderful addition to the stories that we've already looked at regarding Jesus's statement to be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. One of the things that we fear most is a disease that would lead to death. And this story in John 11 shows us that Jesus is to be trusted in the face of disease and death. He has overcome it. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead and restore him, then certainly he's worthy of you entrusting your life to him. It's never about, I shouldn't say never, it's not only about the surface issues in our life. As I said earlier, the issue wasn't about bread, superficial bread. It was about the bread of life. They ate that bread and it perished. Jesus is saying, labor for the bread that doesn't perish. The wine that they drank, that he, that he, turned, he had turned the, the water into wine, that wine they drank, it was great wine. But the wine perished, and those people perished. It wasn't just about the wine. And even your very life, this story of Lazarus, your life and death are not ultimately about this. Even Lazarus, after Jesus restores him, he dies again. Lazarus had to die twice, poor guy. It wasn't just about being raised back to this life. Jesus is saying, as a demonstration of his power, I can give eternal life. And as a little bit of a witness to us, let me show you what I can do with Lazarus. And boom, he called him out of the grave just like that. And so Trinity Church, take heart and be of good cheer. The Savior that you follow, the Savior that you believe, weeps with you. But the Savior that you follow also wins for you. Trust him with everything you've got. Father, I do pray that you would help us to trust Jesus. Thank you for a display of his glory to raise Lazarus from the dead. I pray that this would compel us to trust Jesus in new and fresh ways. In his name, amen.